Christmas time, mistletoe and wine. In fact, hold the mistletoe. I'll just have more wine. It's Toby Haydock's festive who's hey. Wasn't sure what to do for this Christmas special, so I've decided to, well, first off, answer the question, Toby, are you going to be covering the stories that uh, have been aired post-2013, when your task was supposed to begin and end? Uh, and secondly, I'll do you a double bill. And thirdly, I'll do you, rare for this, um, interviews recorded at, con at a convention, which I sort of think might be a bit of a cheat sometimes, but I don't think so in this case, because these two gentlemen had both agreed to do private interviews. It turned out I was interviewing them both on stage and didn't want to then just get them to answer the same questions again when we came off. So um, we've got a bit of atmosphere and a bit of audience and, um, uh, and a charity um, to uh, publicise uh, thanks to Louise Jameson, whose convention, Timey Wimey, uh, we were all at, if it happens next year, again in Brighton. Um, please do come along, because it was lovely. So, um, two gentlemen for your delight and delectation. The first is coming up now on what is, let us remember, a very special day. Yes, that's right. It's the 50th anniversary of the of the broadcast of the Feast of Stephen. Ah, oh, I should have interviewed somebody from that. Well, I've had... Uh, I've, I've, I've got two people from... Uh, much more recent uh, instalments of Doctor Who and I'm sure uh, you'll be interested to hear from them as I herald the first one by asking him what shall I ask him? I'll ask him who you are and why I'm talking to you about Doctor Who uh, <clears throat> Hello, my name's Toby Whithouse uh, I've written six episodes of Doctor Who um, School Reunion, Vampires of Venice God Complex, a Town Called Mercy and a two-parter um, under the lake and before the flood. Well, school reunion, um, bringing back Sarah Jane and Kana. When that was first announced, I thought it was the tabloids going, well, they've brought back the Daleks, they've brought back the Cybermen, oh, there was, and, and it was almost like I thought that's just not going to happen uh, because it just seemed like tabloid extrapolation of what was already happening. Um, and it was possible for a show that was sort of wanting to be new. Did you, did you feel yourself when you were coming to do it that, oh, is this an odd idea to be grabbing something that the modern viewers that we're trying to grab might not necessarily know or care about? Um, it, yeah, I, I guess in hindsight, it, it was uh, an interesting choice, particularly so early in the series, well, so early in the kind of rebirth. This was uh, the, I uh, can't remember, the second or third episode of... Um, it was the third episode of series two. Third episode yeah. of, of series two. Um, yeah, it was um, uh, it was it was an interesting choice, and I suppose it was the first of the kind of I suppose apart from the appearance of the Dalek in in season, season one, um, it was the first kind of nod uh, to the show's the show's history. Um, I I mean I it was it was a real delight and pleasure for me because um, Sarah Jane was the the first companion that I kind of properly remember. Um, and you know, from that, from that, you know, she, you know, she was in the show at that kind of that 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 incredibly, incredibly important period that I guess we've all had with the show, where you, you know, it's your first introduction to the show, your, you know, your first memories of, of the show are around about that time. So it was, um, it was a really kind of wonderful uh, opportunity for me. Um, 
and, and also canine as well, which I had a very mixed... I felt, I felt the canine was much more of, a, of, a, of an odd choice than, um, than, than Sarah Jane. I felt that there was a way of making Sarah Jane fit into the modern incarnation of the show. I couldn't for the life of me see how to make canine fit in. Canine felt to me very much of that period. And, uh, and I loved canine growing up. I had the canine toys, I had a canine book and so on. But I couldn't see how he could fit into the, into the, into the modern into the modern version of the show. And so I kind of made a joke of it when Rose first sees him and says, why does he look so disco? Um, and, and, I, you know, and I think that we kind of found a way around it, actually weirdly by keeping him off screen for, for most of it, and sort of having him kind of, um, having him uh, sort of intervene at certain points. Um, with Sarah Jane, I guess it was kind of easier because it was a very, because regardless of the show's history and regardless of her importance within the show, the story that we were telling was something very, hopefully, very relatable. It was about mortality, it was about getting older, it was about the notion of, you know, a relationship ending and then one person having difficulty moving on while the other one has moved on and formed essentially a new relationship. And so hopefully those are all kind of quite human, relatable stories. And I think that was the way in, that was the way to make her kind of relevant uh, in, in, the, in the modern show. And, and what about you? What was it about you that um, Russell said that he wanted you to bring to Doctor Who and why do you think he, he um, keyed you in with that particular storyline? Um, I don't know. He, um, I'd just come off the back of a... Uh, there was a show I devised called No Angels, um, and which I know Russell was a fan of, and, uh, and I think it was off, off the, the back of that um, that they asked me. They never, I, didn't, I didn't want to question it. I didn't want to say, <laughs> am I really the right person for this job? I was just like, yes, no, good. Yes, I'll, yes, I'll do that. That sounds great. And um, how, how much did it change from your, you know, your initial pitch um, to what we to what we saw on screen and and how and obviously there's now quite a because Doctor Who, new Doctor Who is quite old now. Looking back at those early days of the show that you're still working on, are there things that sort of particularly strike you about? Yeah, about how I mean, you did it then? It's funny. I was we were talking about this earlier. We were saying that you know the pre-titles of School Reunion is Anthony Head eating an orphan, <laughs> and I'm not sure that we could do that necessarily now. Um, <laughs> In terms of, I think it's changed enormously. I think that um, it's interesting. What um, Jamie uh, Madison was talking earlier about um, Mummy on the Orient Express being the kind of rompy episode, and I think up until the God Complex, the episodes I was always asked to do were the rompy ones, and so I think School Reunion was a bit of a romp. And Vampires of Venice, I remember Stephen asking me specifically, he wanted a kind of romantic, rompy, funny episode. Um, actually, I remember um, when, when Stephen first asked me to do this, it was um, for Vampires of Venice, he said, this has got to be the introduction, of, the real kind of introduction for the audience to Rory. This is a big Rory episode. We want to really kind of set out the stall for the character. We want to, and we said, I want a big romantic episode so we can set it anywhere in the world. And I said, oh, can we set it in Venice because that's a very romantic city? But he was saying, you know, it's a crucially important episode, really, because this is our first full proper time with Rory. And he said, you know, and that, so it's a big, important episode for the series. So, you know, we need a, we need a 
grown up to do this one. And I was like, yeah, you do. <laughs> God, he thinks me. Oh, God. <laughs> um, there was a real sense of like, oh. Um, and um, yeah, so I think that, you know, School Reunion and Vampires were, were the kind of rompy episodes. And it wasn't until God Complex that God Complex and, and certainly the last two parter, I think, are much more, are, are a tone and style that I feel as a writer more comfortable than necessarily the, the rompy ones. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it changed it, it changed enormously. There was, I mean, I pitched a couple of ideas to, um, to Russell that were, that were quite rightly shot down in flames. And, um, and we talked uh, briefly about setting it on, an, um, on, a, on a village just outside of an army base. Um, and essentially it was the same plot that something was happening to the people of the village, that something was going on in the army base and it was sort of spilling into the village and affecting and changing the people. Um, and then, and so we talked about that uh, and I, I wrote out a, a document for, you know, how I would do that. Um, and Russell said, um, yep, this is all brilliant, I love it. Actually, let's set it in a school. And it's completely <laughs> changed. And then, you know, from that, that, you know, grew into the, the story. Well, and, and we'll move on to the other stories, but most of the behind-the-scenes stuff, I think it's fair to say, that we had from those early years was Doctor Who Confidential, which was, of course, also a bit of an electronic press kit in a way that, you know, you're going, it's all marvellous. It can't all have been marvellous, because um, you're, you're rewriting the rules about how to make a television show that hadn't really been made and certainly not made in that way. So what, what, what were the, what the more fraught elements that perhaps you didn't talk to Doctor Who Confidential about? Um... I don't think that there's anything that's particularly um, that, 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 you, that, that, is, that is just kind of appropriate to, to Doctor Who. Um, what I mean is that the, the, the stresses and, and um, fraught moments of writing Doctor Who are the same stresses and fraught moments you get writing any episode of any series, really. Um, it's, uh, you know, there are inevitably... Um, compromises. There are compromises that are, that are usually to do with budget. Um, e you know, even on a, I mean, the thing is, I come from a background, you know, the majority of my, my um, you know, I, I spent five years writing Being Human, where, which had a tiny, tiny, tiny budget. Um, and so, writing on Doctor Who, for me, is, is, was, was joyous, because, you know, I could have more than three actors in a, in a scene. I could have, you know, I could have four sets, you know, four locations. And that was... Um, but even within Doctor Who, there is still constraints and limitations, um, and so I don't think that there's necessarily there are necessarily problems that you only have on Doctor Who. Um, I think that you know it is it is the kind of standard stuff of of getting the script in, dealing with notes, um, you know, disagreeing with notes, but then you enter into an adult conversation and you find a resolution. It's um, the, the, pro the, the process of writing is stressful, and, and, and that's not unique to Doctor Who, I guess. So, uh, the, the vampires of Venice, or the, the fish aliens of Dubrovnik, to yeah. give it its proper <laughs> tag. So, um, that you're, you're working under a different regime. So, what, what is the difference between, you know, pitching a script and working on a script with, with Russell and, and then with Stephen? Um, I, there isn't really a huge difference. I would say that the difference is, the difference between those two episodes was how much I had changed over the course of, of, the, of the intervening years. I think that I had become a different writer. And I think that um, Russell was 
very, very patient with me and very generous and forgiving with me. Um, and really, yeah, and, kind of, and, I, and um, because it was much earlier in my career. And by the time I got to write uh, with Stephen, I think I ch I'd matured and changed a lot as a writer. So I don't think, I think that actually the way that they run the shows is, is pretty similar, to be honest. And, and for, you know, both of them, they have Doctor Who in their DNA. They are, you will never find two people who love that show more and, and who still have a kind of ridiculous excitement that only really the people in this room would understand. That, um, and they, they, you know, their, their passion and love for the show is, is, is tangible. So I don't think that... You know, they, there are kind of perhaps differences in terms of their approach, but not huge or significant. I think that I think the difference between two episodes was how 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 much I changed as a writer. I felt more confident. I felt a bit more empowered. I felt that I had a bit more. Uh, I had uh, I had more agency in as much as I knew a bit more what I was doing. But I, I think that I think that they are quite similar, really, in terms of their approaches. And and vampires. What struck me about vampires of Venice when I watched it for the second time, was there's a, there's a lot of really good jokes in it. So, um, it's, but that's a balancing act, isn't it? Because Doctor Who has to be funny. Yeah, and, and like I said earlier, I think that um, you, can, you can make the rompy episodes funnier than, than the darker episodes. Um, my, I mean, to be honest, my way of writing is, is kind of uniform, um, you know, with, with kind of perhaps, you know, a, a bit of kind of radiant, but um, my, my, my approach to writing is exactly the same. Whether I'm writing Doctor Who or Being Human or No Angels or The Game or whatever, I'll, I approach it, I tend to approach things, uh, you know, in, in, in a similar way. Um, but yeah, I mean, because, because the, the, the brief that Stephen had given me for Vampires of Venice was, we want a big romantic romp. This wasn't going to be a dark chamber piece episode like something like God Complex was. This was going to be a big romantic romp. And so I think that that does make you, to a degree, you know, just turn up the funny a bit. Um, uh, I mean, the thing about I feel about Vampires of Venice is that perhaps more so than, than School Reunion, it's the one episode I kind of slightly wince at more because I feel that, and I think that, I think that the, the faults with the episode are entirely my fault. Um, I wrote a script that was just way too long. Quite simply, it was just way too long. And they filmed, there was tons that they filmed that they just was, wasn't room for. And so consequently, the, the, the story becomes a bit kind of jagged and truncated and um, a bit jumpy, I think, um, particularly as we get into like, the second half of it, because they just had to cut it down to make it fit into the, into the, into the slots. And so if I could do it again, uh, that, I think that more than School Reunion is, is the one episode I'd like to do again, because I feel as though... I made mistakes on that episode. The others I can look at and think, oh, you know, I could change that line or change that scene or whatever, but I think that that's the one I kind of think, I feel as though I dropped the ball on that. Well, and, and the next one is an extraordinary... It must, I wonder things with things like the God Complex, there's just, I don't think there's a story that had looked like it up to that point as well, and Nick Harron was directing yeah. it, and you've got, you've got all that... Um, the sort of when the thing starts to happen and it flashes to the writing and the quick flash and all that. How much of that was in your script? Did you make a suggestion of no, the, the visuals? Um, no? Only, I mean, when, when I, whenever I write a script, I'll, I'll try and put as much detail as I possibly can into the descriptions of the set, of the costumes, of the monsters, or whatever. Um, uh, even in kind of, you know, the, um, again, this is slightly tangential, but... Um, uh, 
the whole reason that um, being human happened was because uh, I'd written an episode of something. Uh, I won't say what it was. Um, I'd written an episode of something, and there was a fantastic gag in it. And uh, the gag was ruined because the actor put the stress on the wrong word. And I was, I was furious because it was an amazing <laughs> gag. And, and I remember thinking, right, right, oh, so clearly I have to do everything. I have to be on set and I have to die. Right, I'm going to become a director. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a director. And I thought, right, well, okay, well, what do I need to do to become a director? Right, I need to, I need to write and direct a short film. Right, okay, um, short film, short film. Um, romantic comedy about a werewolf. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. Uh, because then I can make sure that all of the actors say the right that put the stress on the right word. And so I came up with this idea for a romantic comedy about a werewolf. And then um, at the same time, I was, de I was devising a show about um, people showing a house uh, in, in Bristol, um, and which was getting nowhere. And so as a, you know, a kind of slightly sort of desperate kamikaze move, I suggested that we take the character from my short film idea and make... Make, so basically, make one of the, the people in the house share story a werewolf. And so blah, 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 that led to being human. And so being human happened purely because somebody had put the wrong stress on a, on a line in one of my scripts. And it kind of makes me realise now, if I just put that, that line, if I put that word in italics on the dialogue, being human never would have <laughs> So probably, a, you know, probably a good thing. But... Um, so yeah, so I'll put as much detail as I possibly can into into everything, and certainly for the the um, the description of the set in the God Complex, um, I mean yeah, they, that was that was absolutely exactly what I saw, exactly what I wanted. You know, I wanted it to be that awful, ghastly kind, of, the sort of hotel that we've all that our parents took us to on you know horrific holidays to Weymouth or, or wherever. Um, Maybe it was just me, but you know, to horrible kind of you know sort of childhood holidays, and that was what I wanted the hotel to be like. Um, and and I was just so, I was del I was so thrilled and so happy with with that with that episode um, and with what they did. The the writing coming up that was something that um, uh, Nick added himself um, or, or you know whoever. Um, and and I must admit, when I first watched it, I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that, but actually. Um, it really grew on me, but certainly I, I'll make it because you, as a writer, you you only really have one opportunity to really kind of um, to, you know to, to, to stamp your, your your imprint on it. You only have one opportunity to to describe what you want in terms of costume, in terms of design, and so if you miss that opportunity, there's no point saying later on, oh no, I, I wanted the the monsters to have really long arms. You know, you, you should have said that in the script. And similarly with the set and the costumes. What I also love about that story is that some actor at a dinner party somewhere was going, did you like that show Being Human? You know, well, actually, it uh, wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I could, yes, yeah. Thankfully, I don't understand the natural rhythms of human speech. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it had been my plan all along. Um, I thought, <laughs> so... Um, so, you started to become a bit more... Um, writing a bit more regularly. Is that because... The gap between school reunion and and vampires of Edge just because you'd been doing other stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was. Um, I, I mean, to be fair, within that time, I did an episode of Torchwood um, for Russell. Um, 
So, yeah, and I think that, and, I, and you know, God, this, what a fantastic way to spend a year, but I would do, basically every year I would have time to do a series of Being Human and one episode of Doctor Who. And so, um, yeah, so that, that was kind of, how, you know, that was what I'd do. And so, I mean, with a town called Doctor Who had done a Western once before. Yes. Which uh, yes. is not a story that is in the, is ever, I love it, but it's not wide, widely regarded I, as I Doctor said, Who's finest I said to, um, to Stephen and Brian, do you think I should, you know, I should watch the guns thing? Is there, no! <laughs> no need, really. Um, yeah, the, 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 that was the, um, the series where Stephen wanted big marquee episodes. Um, and he was kind of thinking, and being quite sort of open about it, he said, he, I'm thinking about the posters. For, you know, for, and they, they, they would have posters for each episode. And he said to me, I want you to do a Western. And I, I must admit, I kind of thought, oh, really? It's not a genre I'm particularly, you know, um, a fan of. Um, so, but anyway, so, you know, um, uh, and then from that he said, um, the, the way that Stephen and I tend to work together is that he will both in terms of the God Complex, Town Called Mercy and the two-parter he'll have a, a one or two line pitch and then I'll kind of work it out you know, from that, I mean with, with lots of kind of conversations with him and for Town Called Mercy he said, I've just got this idea about a town and there's a robot sort of circling the town that's it and so, you know, and that, but what's great about that is the thing is, is that, demand, that instantly you come up with a hundred questions. And so you think, well, why? What is in the town that this robot wants? Why, is it, why isn't it going in? And so and the thing is, is that the answer to all of those questions is what gives you your story and gives you your plot. Um, so anyway, and then, and then as, I was, as I was writing the episode, um, I kind of, you know, I sort of thought... We, we, need all of the, we need all of the Western tropes. You know, just as Jamie was saying earlier, in terms of, you know, you need to see that the, the Vikings need to have horns on their helmets. And similarly, you kind of, I need, you know, we need to see the Doctor on a horse at some point. We need to have the, the Doctor become the Sheriff at some point. You just, you know, you need a, um, a high noon um, gunfight. And in a way, and perhaps it's a slightly artificial way of, of approaching it, but if you're, if you're, if you're writing an episode in that genre, you, you kind of need to, you know, you, you need those tropes, really. Mm. You didn't have a Mexican under a tree. Uh, the director's cut. <laughs> but you did have the Doctor wielding a gun and the yes. whole moral dilemma of that. So, that, I mean, that's quite sticky, choppy waters for Doctor Who there. Yeah, and, but the thing is, again, that's, but that's a fantastic opportunity to explore that. It's a great opportunity to then kind of um, extrapolate his... Uh, his morality and um, so moments like that they're actually really good fun to write and they're really, even though it, you know it, it's actually really important to address those things I think well and uh, we sort of skipped over the fact that obviously when you came back to Doctor Who Doctor Who was a different person so what were the differences of writing for, for, for David and then for, for Matt Smith um the, every time there is a new Doctor, it is a completely different character. When I first started writing the outline for School Reunion, I thought it was Chris Eccleston. And so, um, and actually then it happens in a very kind of gradual way that sort of you do start to, 
you know, you, you just start to kind of realign it, and it happens in a, and it happens in a million kind of slightly indefinable ways that actually the spin you put on one line of dialogue, you know, and it, it, you know, it is quite kind of gradual. I think the difference between, um, I, you know, I, I, I suppose also that, that, that particularly with Peter's Doctor, um, it, it, he's become much more alien. I mean, I think David, I seem to remember David saying that he'd made a deliberate choice to make his Doctor very, very human. And that was something he wanted to do. And because he'd you know, been planning in his mind how he would play the Doctor since he was a child. And, so, and I think he always wanted his, his Doctor to be very human. Whereas I think um, I really like... When, when, and that was fantastic, for, you know. Um, but I, I really like and really have enjoyed writing Peter's alienness. Um, and the, you know, the, for example, you know, having the emotional cue cards in that episode. I really enjoyed that, the notion of him being dysfunctional um, but all of these things are you know but you know with Peter I had the advantage of having watched a series um, you know with, before I before I wrote on it and so I could see what he was doing with the character I could see how he was how he was you know what his spin on the character was and so that was that was a huge advantage and so you just kind of click into that rhythm um, and with Matt um, I had well, I had a couple of things. I mean, you know, there was, by the time I, was, I wrote Vampires of Venice, I had um, Stephen's uh, script, The Eleventh Hour, where this new Doctor is written beautifully. I mean, everything you need to know is in that script. But also, I had this thing, which um, I don't quite know how many people know that we did this, but um, we, um, before uh, they started filming, we did a read-through of the first six episodes. <coughs> Um, so that was um, the eleventh hour, uh, the first half of the Beast Below, um, the no, the um, Weeping Angels two-parter, and um, Mark's Dalek one. Yes, Mark's Dalek one, and that was a Venice, the one I wrote, and um, uh, and so, but it was they, we, all we had cast-wise was Matt and Karen. And so the other parts were played by uh, me, Mark, um, the couple of script editors, a couple of you know um, producers, and so on. And uh, I was Rory for all six episodes, uh, which was fantastic. <laughs> and I asked specifically to be Rory because that meant I would be doing scenes with Matt and with Karen. Um, uh, I was the Bill Patterson part in the uh, Daleks one. Um, Mark was obviously Churchill. Um, he, uh, he absolutely insisted on that, um, and and so consequently, apart from the fact that you know, I like I said, I got to act, you know, I got to do scenes with the um, uh, with both of them. It also just gave me a greater sense of um, of how you know how Matt was going to do it. It must have been incredibly nerve wracking for Matt and Karen because this was. Uh, and this was before, obviously, we had kind of official sort of read-throughs of the scripts. But it must have been absolutely, nerve you know, horribly nerve-wracking for them. Um, but it was fantastic. And it was just a really lovely kind of, um, yeah, just a really lovely uh, occasion. Um, and really, really exciting to hear all of the scripts um, read out. And like I said, we did, they did the first half of The Beast Below. And The Beast Below, I think, is an interesting episode. Because actually, I think that... Um, if I'm honest, I don't think the execution of the episode is, is, is brilliant. It's one of the best scripts I've ever read. 
absolutely stunning. And we only had the first half of it, because Stephen hadn't written the rest. But um, I think we ended on the moment where it's the, the where uh, Amy plays back the footage and and um, uh, she's saying, don't press the button, don't press the button, or whatever, whatever it was. Absolutely electrifying. Like I said, this a stunning, stunning script, I thought. Um, and it's a shame it doesn't kind of get the recognition it deserves. But um, yeah, so anyway, so um, I got a, I get a sense of, of Matt and Karen's um, performances from that. And of course, now with um, your latest and a two parter, uh, you have, you've touched upon. Um, um, Capaldi, but he's obviously he's a, he's a different doctor and he's an older doctor. I mean, he's all uh, he's a spiky doctor, he's all the things we perhaps thought that maybe Doctor Who wasn't going to be anymore. Mm. Um, so, uh, I mean, how did you approach writing that and, 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 and how much does the actor inform the sort of stuff you give him to do? I mean, it's the, the actor informs it enormously. Um, and the thing is, is it becomes a sort of, as I know from you know, on being human when you're writing for the same actor for, you know, for year after year. Um, it's very difficult to know where their performance and the writing, one begins and one ends. They just become, um, and you know, so the thing is, is you get so used to, 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 to an actor's voice that you're just writing it in that voice. And, um, and it's very difficult to know if that was a voice that you created or they created. And... Yeah, with Peter, it was, you know, like I said, I, I had, I, you know, I had uh, 12, 13 episodes to watch to understand how he, what his approach to the character was. But I found it really exciting. I found the notion of this darker, more, um, more kind of angry, more distant and fractured Doctor, I found that really exciting uh, to, to write for. I think that it allows... It allows a kind of, whereas, Matt, you know, the humour that you, you would have to, you, you have different kinds of jokes. So, and, and, um, and uh, the, the, the gags that you would have for Matt were those of the, of the dotty eccentric professor. Where, uh, you know, where it was all slightly kind of, where the humour was quite benign in a way. Whereas the, 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 the kind of, the tone of gags that you have for Capaldi, it's darker, it's a little more spiky. Um, which I think is m more a, a, a kind of a, a, an area that I feel more comfortable in. Um, so yeah, it was it was a joy writing for him. And also the other thing, whether it's David or Matt or Peter, and, so, and I've said this in interviews before, whoever is playing Doctor Who is is one of the best actors of their generation. That's why they get the part. And so consequently, from a writer's point of view, you can throw anything at them. You can throw the most the subtlest gag, the most complicated thought process. And they can do it, because that's how good they are. And so, they're always a joy to write for. Um, you, you know, you, you differ your, your style accordingly, but they're always a joy to write for, because they're just so good. Well, and I think, we'll open it up uh, shortly, but I think there's a, there's a question that has to be asked about this particular era of Doctor Who, where I think the boldest uh, thing that it, has, that it has given itself, that I think maybe makes it different from any other talking the, the Moffat era than, than any other, is its embracing of the idea that Doctor Who has a lot of time travel in it. I think it's fair to say that time travel used to bring the Doctor to the adventure and it would take him away from the adventure, but very little time travel was done in an adventure. And yours, you know, you think you're, you've got an angle on the story because it's these monsters and there's a base and, uh, and then just towards the end of episode one he goes, 
I'm going to travel back in time. You go, of course, because we're rooted in the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who, where stories don't necessarily have a beginning and a middle and end in that order. Mm -hmm. Now, that makes it surely very complicated for you as a writer as to how you rein yourself in or, 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 or the rules that you make for yourself so you can still have jeopardy that cannot be solved by the time travel yeah. that you've now facilitated. Yeah, yeah, um, because it would be very easy, and I suppose I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it before. But in a way, in in uh, Under the Lake, the Doctor does the thing that he's never done in any episode before, which is kind of I'm going to go back to the beginning of this story and sort of stop it happening. And obviously, thankfully, that that goes wrong. Um, I've always wanted to write a timey wimey episode. I've always wanted to do. To, to, to break up the narrative in that way. Um, and so that was really exciting. There was, there was much more um, time travel stuff in part two that they filmed that didn't uh, make it to screen. There was, a, there was a kind of, there was just a sort of another little kind of loop of something. Um, and perhaps in hindsight it's good that it didn't, it didn't make it through, otherwise um, it would have been way too complicated. But um, I really wanted to, I, yeah, I mean, you, you know, if you're going to have, if you're going to, have a time traveller, you know, you want to exploit that, you want to kind of really, you know, uh, use that to its fullest advantage. And it's great fun to write, it's fantastic fun to write a timey-wimey episode, because it's, because of that, because of the challenges that are inherent with that, of, um, of, of presenting the characters with those dilemmas. So, for example, when the Doctor says, uh, you know, he's talking about Prentice, who they, you know, only experienced as a ghost, and then suddenly they're seeing him as a real-life alien, um, this notion about you can't warn them, you can't talk to them, because then you really are seeing a ghost. You can't talk to somebody you have just seen dead. Um, and I find all of those, those kind of motifs incredibly interesting and really exciting to write. And uh, let's touch upon the fact that this you know, uh, story had a, a character who spoke sign language, but sign language wasn't the key to solving the story. Um, so where where did that come from, and and maybe tell us because I would discuss as a, somebody very important to me in my life, who is a child who speaks sign language, who, for whom I'm watching this go, this is brilliant. He doesn't have anything like this. Yeah. So where did that come from? And then bizarrely, you met him at the, the, the screening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I have to say that um, having uh, that deaf, the deaf uh, character in the show um, has turned out to be one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had as a writer. It, um, it, it came about, well, there were kind of a, a lot of kind of reasons why this happened. In terms of the story, it began from pure plot point. Uh, I needed a character who could uh, lip read. And so at first I thought, we'll just have a character who can lip read, who for some reason can lip read, whatever. Um, and then actually I thought, and then I was reminded of a, uh, a panel I'd seen at a, a writer's festival in Leeds. Um, where, which was about uh, inclusivity and diversity uh, for uh, deaf and disabled actors and parts and characters within TV shows. And it was talking about the fact that, um, well, ultimately there is none. And, and actually we, there is just so much, there is so much further to go that in terms of uh, diversity for deaf and disabled people, we are where we were with um, racial diversity 30 years ago. There's a huge gap that has, you know, that we've still got a long, long way to go. So, and they were saying that, um, essentially what I took from it was that for people like myself who 
are writers and then on my own show I'm an executive producer, where somebody like me in a way has a, has a twofold responsibility. As a writer, it is my responsibility to write deaf and disabled parts, write those, you know, just write those parts. And as an executive producer, it is my responsibility to cast deaf and disabled actors into non-deaf and disabled parts. So it becomes, because the thing is, is that ultimately this has to become utterly ubiquitous. It has to become normal. And the thing is, is that every interview I've done about Doctor Who since I wrote those episodes has touched on the fact that this has got, uh, this has got a deaf actress in it. thing is, absolutely, quite rightly, no one, thankfully, talks about the fact that there were three, uh, you know, there, there were three actors of colour within it. Because of course not. That's fantastic. That's good, you know. Um, and so, you know, and, that, and that's the point where we have to get to. So then, um, so gradually, so I thought, actually, well, I could just make the character deaf and we'll get a deaf actor. Cool. But because I'd already sort of worked out the plot, um, her, her deafness wasn't, you know, did, didn't become the kind of linchpin of the, of the story. It didn't, you know, I didn't want her lip reading and so on, even though it's a skill, I didn't want it to be like a superpower. I didn't, you know, and the thing is, is that hopefully what we arrived at was a character who was defined by her. What I wanted for the character, more importantly, was that I wanted her to be incredibly clever. And so there is the moment where the doctor says to her, when I step outside, you're the smartest person in the room. I wanted her to be the one who had the intuition and the, and, and that kind of, and just the, the kind of, the, the, the intellect to work out these riddles. Um, and that, that for me, was the defining characteristic of her. Um, and then we, we've had um, a couple of, we had a screening uh, where I met um, uh, Toby Steps, did you have Steps? Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, uh, uh, held by C here, the, the BBC Dev Show, and they did a screening of it down in Bristol. And the, and the audience was, I'd say, 90% um, deaf or hearing impaired. And the response was utterly overwhelming, completely blew us away. And it was myself, Dan who directed it, Derek who produced it, uh, Sophie, who played Cass, and Zaki, who played Lum. Um, and the response was utterly <coughs> overwhelming because this community had never seen themselves represented on screen. And I was just completely unprepared for that. I had no idea that it was kind of that bad, you know. Um, and, and also that they hadn't seen themselves represented on screen in a, very, in such a, in su in a positive light, whereby you know, like I said, where the, 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 the character's disability was kind of immaterial. It didn't define her as a person. Um, and like I said, I don't think that the episodes themselves are, are particularly groundbreaking or anything like that, but the inclusion of that character has made it this incredibly kind of overwhelming and uh, humbling experience for me. It's just been really, really wonderful. And, and like I said, it is now my responsibility and the responsibility of writers in my position to do more and to keep doing that until it becomes, until we can have it and, and not have to talk about it in interviews. So thanks to Toby uh, and one of his fellow scriptwriters uh, was also on hand to share his memories. Here he is. I get to do the thing I normally do is to ask my interviewee to tell me who they are and why I'm talking to them about Doctor Who. Uh, my name is Jamie Matheson, and I've written three episodes of Doctor Who. 
not only, Jamie Matheson, have you written three episodes of Doctor Who, but you wrote the two episodes of Doctor Who last year that were the runaway successes of the season. So that was a bit of a baptism of... Uh... <laughs> so all your subsequent albums are going to be very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult third album this year, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it was... It, I don't think anybody thought that Mummy and Flatline were going to be as well-received as they were. Certainly, up until the screening, I was I was kind of psychologically prepared for a kicking, and then was very pleasantly surprised when it didn't happen. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good thing. And so, how would you? Let's go right back to the beginning because your uh, your pitches for the episodes that you got made uh, weren't your first um, uh, pitches to Doctor Who. So when when did Doctor Who first come onto your radar and it, it, it to you as a as a professional? Right. Well. Um, I mean, shall we go all the way back? Oh. Shall we go all the well, way back? Well, in my quest to be a footnote in Doctor Who history, I may uh, listen up, Pixley. I'm in this one. This is, uh, this is a lovely story of how uh, me and Mr. Toby Haydock first met, uh, which is basically 1996. I just started trying to do stand-up comedy, and I was at the point where I was getting paid 10-minute spots uh, which is what they give you when they don't you good at it for a full spot. I went to Manchester and uh, I did a 10 minute paid spot and at a stage, at that stage I couldn't drive so I was going to have to run to get the last train home and there was a guy at the, uh, the gig, who was another comedian, and he said that was brilliant, um, don't run for the last train, it's fine, I can get you a bed for the night, don't worry, it's fine. I'm like, okay, uh, that'll be good, you seem like a decent fellow, let's do that. So I stayed for the rest of the night and then left with him and his girlfriend. And he said, oh, we found out about a great student house party that's going on, we're going there now. And I'm like, okay, I'm now bound to you. I have no choice but to go with you to this student house party. I hope you're not a mad party person. He was a mad party person. <laughs> so he got steamily drunk at this party, headbutted a student, and I left there following him and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend was screaming at him. And I was just thinking, this has turned into a complete nightmare of the evening. And I was like, I just want to sleep. This was about two in the morning. And, he, and we eventually wound our way to this house. And we went into this house, and he said, this is my friend Toby. And this is his sofa where you'll be sleeping. And that is when I met Mr. Toby Hayo. At which point, this is two in the morning, and I'm thinking, great, there's my sofa where we're going to be sleeping. We all sat on the sofa, and Toby said, let's put the five doctors on. <laughs> <laughs> so he put a VHS tape into a VHS player, pressed play, and we sat and watched the five doctors. And I just sat there thinking, we're all sitting on my bed. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. Um, but yeah, that is uh, effectively how we met. That, yes, and uh, I'm looking in now. Uh, so, but that, but, um, so I don't know if we'd, we tested whether you were a Doctor Who fan at that point. You... Uh, no, I wasn't, and I was even less of one after I watched the five Doctors. <laughs> you, no, I think, because I've said this before, but when I was uh, very young, when I was too young, I uh, watched Terror of the Zygons, the Tom Baker thing, and it terrified me. I think it was about four or five. And then Doctor Who became the scary programme that I could never watch. Um, so I kind of avoided it for, for most of my childhood. I remember seeing Tom Baker regenerate to Peter Davidson and a bit, bit of that era. Um, and then I, I sort of became a fan again with the reboot, effectively. So, but yeah, so, so to get back to your original question, which was uh, how Who came into my life 
with the reboot. I actually met with Judy Gardner before the reboot began, and she read a spec script of mine, which is a script you just write for no money with the hope that you'll get paid, you know, to make it. She read this spec script, said, "You're you're great. We'd love to get you as a writer of Doctor Who. We've got all the writers for season one, but we'll definitely have you back for season two. Bearing in mind this is even before Christopher Eccleston had been announced as the Doctor, so I thought, brilliant. I'm a shoe in for season two. Then Doctor Who came and was such a huge success, as we all know, and just you know took off." stratosphere. And at that point I thought, I've got no TV credits really to speak of. There's no way on earth I'm going to get to write for season two. And that is how it transpired to be. So it was like my agent kept knocking on the door year in, year out. I got a gig right being human, which I did for four years. And eventually I got in the room with uh, with Stephen Moffat. And I thought, I got in the room with Stephen Moffat, I'm bound to write for Doctor Of course, you get in the room with Stephen Moffat as a writer, you think it's going to happen there. And I pitched him and I vividly remember realising kind of halfway through the meeting, oh, this is the let the poor sod down gently speech I'm getting from Stephen Moffat. And I didn't get it. And it was just like, oh, I didn't get to get it. And I walked out, you know, um, in real low spirits. And then I think of a further two or three years passed. And this time I, when I got in the room with him, I think the thing, <coughs> the thing that got me in the room with him next time was Stephen's wife, and she, Sue Virtues, reminded me of her vital part in this story. Stephen's wife, Sue Virtue, read another spec script of mine. Spec scripts have got me so much work. And then another spec script got me being human. Anyway, she read a spec script of mine, put it in front of Stephen and said, you've got to read this. He read it and said, we'll get him in again. This time I went in, belts and braces. I had four episode ideas and four drawings of monsters because I went to art college. So I'm like, right, my three years at art college is finally going to pay off. Um, and one of the monsters that I drew was the boneless, and he looked at it and he went, ah, okay, and that became Flatline. So that's a very long, rambling answer to that question. No, it's a good one. Um, and, um, I mean, Sue Virtue was important, but did she show the five doctors 20 years ago? No, she didn't. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> well, the other thing to mention, which, you, uh, which, was, which has sort of not been uh, mentioned before, is before, before I had the second meeting with Stephen Moffat, I called you up. You did. And I said, Toby, I'm going in again with Stephen. I want to make sure that I'm not pitching any ideas that have been done before. And we sat in a cafe and I went through all of them. Yeah. And I think the, the bonus one you said had certain similarities to another idea, but it wasn't close enough to... But yeah, I mean, basically, he was my Doctor Who expert and I was like, help, I want to make sure that I get this. So I think, I, think, I think it's not too far of a stretch to say I owe my entire Doctor Who career to you. I don't think it's too far at all. <laughs> um, yeah, no, because I think I, we also met before the first one. Oh, did we? And okay. we talked through that, and then you sent the email going, I, I did, you, right, you right, sort right, of said, right. you know, I, I've had that let me down gently speech yes, sort of yes. thing. And so then when you said you were going again, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, as you say, you, 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 you've really sort of galvanised yourself and, yeah. and you've been quite fastidious. Yes. And, uh, and, and there That's we are. And, and you got Flatline, which yeah. I'm, uh, probably a lot of sort of cursory fans don't realise came before The Mummy. And then yes. I think I texted you and said, so how's the episode gone? And you've gone, I'm doing another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the way that panned out, um, I did, I think I did three drafts, three drafts of Flatline. And um, I think it was either the second, the, the third or fourth draft was a really big rewrite. 
because um, there were two changes. Firstly, we found out the new doctor was going to be Peter Capaldi, which, you know, and, and it was going to be a totally new persona, and I had to go for a meeting with Stephen, and it was like, right, this is, he was telling all the writers, this is my vision for the new doctor. And so we were all trying to wrap our heads around that. And then the second bit of news was, this has to be a Doctor-like episode. So we just sat there, and I was like, right, so we've got to be trapped in one location for most of the episode. So the idea would be that Peter Capaldi could fill most of his scenes in a couple of days with no resetting, which would be a lot quicker to do. So I'd already got the idea of the five-foot-tall TARDIS in the script, and, and, it, and the script at that stage was a kind of conventional uh, Doctor and, and companion running around trying to figure it out. And I said, okay, well, what if we carried that on? What if we kept the TARDIS shrinking and made it so small the Doctor couldn't get out? And then we have his hand coming out, gags <laughs> of that nature. And then Stephen Moffat, in the irritating way that he's got of being cleverer than you and quicker than you, just went, I'll go you one better. Clara's carrying the TARDIS in her bag for the whole episode. And I was just like, I would have got there eventually, Stephen. <laughs> You'd have just given me a minute. Um, so that was his, his spin on it. Um, so then I went away and rewrote with that in mind. But that was a massive rewrite because I had to. I mean, obviously, if you do if you do it well, it it, it comes across very smoothly in the, in the actual episode. But the logistics of he's in the TARDIS, only Clara can hear him, so any information he gives to Clara is not audible to anybody but Clara. And just getting my head around that, and how the jokes would work, and everything, all the information passing back and forth. I got headaches every day right doing that rewrite. Um, but at the end of it, I thought this really works. There's something about this that's really punchy. And halfway through it, I had the idea of the um, the hand coming out of the TARDIS and pulling it away from danger. And I thought that is the cherry on the cake of this episode. I've actually got it on a T-shirt. <laughs> um, and I rewrote it and sent it in. And I think about three days after that, I got an email from Stephen Moffat. And when the boss emails you directly, you go home oh. because uh, it doesn't happen that often. And he said he read it and punched the air. something to offer you. Are you in for a phone call tomorrow? And I really remember thinking, this is going to be oh yeah, we've got some Doctor Who memorabilia knocking around the office. I wondered if you wanted it. You know what I mean? <laughs> some Doctor Who pyjamas, you know. And then they rang and said, do you want to do another episode? And I'm like, uh, yeah, that would be very nice. And they said, um, Steve's got a title, which is Mummy on the Orient Express, but they haven't anything beyond that. They've just got that title. Uh, so, I then sort of had a big think, wrote a page, I think I wrote a sort of page outline of what it could be. But I think even, I'm not sure, yeah, I think fairly quickly I figured out the idea of the mummy that uh, no one else can see but the victim. And it was one of those things I thought, surely Doctor Who's done that. You know when you have an idea and just think, that rings a bell, I can't believe they're not. And I did some research and obviously they have. And I thought, well I'm having that, you know. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was how I did it. Because with, with a, an episode like that, you have a mystery, which is what is, you know, it's obviously not a, your conventional mummy, what, what's going on. Where, when do you as a writer work out what your ending is? Because it's all very well having a great mystery. If you don't know how to solve it, you're in trouble as a writer. So when, when in the process does, does the end game come and then do you sort of write backwards? Well, I, I came up with the high concept first of only the victim can see it, which was basically to solve the logistical problem of a mummy, a train is a really confined space to be running around from a monster. And it's like, well, as soon as someone's died and been killed by the monster, you've just got lots of people running up and down the train, you know, it would just get farcical. 
So it was like, right, it's got to be hidden in some way. How do we hide? So it was just logistically thinking it through that way. And then thinking, right, what could it be? Um, what could be the explanation of that? I mean, I thought of an incredibly convoluted um, backstory for the mummy, which, and, and, and initially I thought that it being invisible and only visible to the victim would not be enough. I thought it needed an extra tweak. So effectively, the early drafts of Mummy had a kind of final destination uh, Rube Goldberg machine vibe, where effectively the Mummy was killing people by manipulating probability. So the old lady, we can see you. Uh, sorry, they just in like that. <laughs> uh, the old lady who dies at the beginning, uh, it turned out that there'd been a malfunction in her wheelchair that was a million to one. So it's like probability had been tweaked, and the, the chef in the uh, freezer who died the micrometeorite had pierced the hull and the shields had just failed for a, for a fraction of a second, which was a million to one chance, and he'd been killed by his bullet like micrometeorite. So I got all this, like, these ideas that probability was being tweaked by the mummy to kill you, so, but it just felt it was an extra wrinkle it didn't need. And I, I got this big backstory about the race of the mummies and they, they'd got these probability engines built into the, their outfits to save them from accidents. And, it was, it was turning it around so it was making other people happy. And it's just like, you don't need that. You really don't need that. Um, and at a certain point, because you're always fighting 45 pages, that's like 45 minutes. Um, at a certain point, we had a meeting. It was like, this is too long. There's too much going on. What's going to be cut? And I said, the probability stuff, because I don't think it needs it. And everyone went, yeah, you're right, it doesn't. So all of that went. And Stephen just said to me, what is the simplest explanation for what the mummy is? I said, a soldier from a war, and, and this is it, fighting a battle. You know, do that, that's it, the simplest way through it. And so that's what we ended up doing. I mean, the aspect of it that um, it, it, was, it was, I understand why it happened, but it, a bit of me kind of rails against it, railed against it at the time, was we had the read through, and at the time, the 66 seconds uh, countdown was done in movie time. So it was kind of fudged. You, you, the speech would last, and no, there was no clock in the front of the screen. It was just like, oh, it kills you in 66 seconds. And then someone would ramble on for two minutes. And you, you know, you're hoping they want to check in their watch before they die. And we did the read through, it was lovely. And then Stephen said, we should do exactly 66 seconds. And we should put a clock in the corner of the screen to show we're not cheating. But I thought, that's genius. But I've now got to rewrite the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So literally, we were shooting in a week, and I went away, and I was sitting there with a stopwatch, and literally out loud saying the lines of all the people who were dying, and going, I'm sorry you're waffling on too long, you've got to be cut down, so, you know, lines. Were, and the, the one that got cut the most was the doctor's speech, because obviously he's going, I'm figuring it out, I'm figuring it out, A to B to C to D, and you're like, right, you've talked for two minutes, you've got to lose 30 seconds of, of figuring it out. So that's why it is a bit bam, 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 the end, because it, I've only got 66 seconds to play with. But I, I think the line that I cut that I really missed was, uh, those aren't um, just bandages, they're field dressings. And it's like that leads to war, you know, it's the idea that just dead on, dead on. And, and, you know, that goes, and, and suddenly it seems a bit of a jump to, this is a, a soldier from a forgotten war, but, you know, something had to give. Well, because the... Obviously, some, some fans lament the fact that Doctor Who stories aren't the length that they were back in the day when we first started watching it. Would you, do you feel you would like to tackle an idea that you could stretch out for, you know, the equivalent of 
for probably you know two or three episodes uh, to tell one story of, 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 of the length of the episodes now. You know, an old six-parter is is three episodes worth now. I, it'd be an interesting exercise. I mean, I think that the the, um, the sort of discipline of having to write for forty-five minutes uh, it's a very you, you have to cut everything to the quick. I mean, characters have to be defined in one line and, and kind of really distilled down to their essence because you haven't got time for anything else, really. Um, I mean, one of the things... This is just going to be me venting, really. One of the things that galls me about uh, the sort of reviews of Flatline I read was saying, well, the, the, the character work on the secondary victims is all perfunctory. I'm like, no, it was there, but it was cut. You just got... It was all there was some lovely, juicy stuff with Rigsy and the real sort of head of the cleaners that just really deepen their characters. But in, in terms of editing, you go, well, it doesn't further the plot. That's the first thing that's going to go is character work. So anytime you see a Doctor Who episode and you think, yeah, those characters are a bit sketchy, it was probably there at some stage. And then they just looked at it and went, right, if we cut this bit, the monsters don't make sense anymore and the end doesn't make sense. However, this touching monologue that explains this character can go. Um, so that's, that's effectively what happened. Yeah, well, I, I remember being quite surprised by Matt Bardock, who died in casualty the week, the Saturday before, and he's back on BBC the following Saturday, having a relatively, relatively few lines. But I think, I think then you said that you know he'd, he'd had more to do. Yes. Uh, and his agent probably thought he'd had more to yeah. do, and then it all get, gets hoiked out. Well, I mean, the, the, the plot line um, that was in there, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it panned out. But uh, one, one thing I, I thought. And I still think, it's like, you know, part of me is thinking, if I get a chance, I'll probably put this in another, <laughs> another episode. Is whenever you have these characters um, who are kind of facing death and are trapped in a sort of, you know, base under siege scenario, I, want, I, I put a scene in there where it's like, um, your mate, because they didn't realise the doctor was in her bag, your mate who's on the outside, can you get a message to my wife? And that was Matt Bardock's line. And it was just like, she, uh, the doctor then said, I've boosted your phone, give him, his, give him your phone. She, and Clara's like, are we really at that stage? And he's like, yeah, we are. And so the phones pass around all the survivors in a kind of, you can ring your loved ones. And I think that's what I want to see in a base of the secret. It's like, we could all die, maybe ring your, you know, ring your wife or whatever. So Matt Bardock uh, rang his wife and the phone was then passed to Fenton, who was the obnoxious. Uh, Chris leader. Fairbank. There we yeah. go, the leader of the cleaners. And you had him looking at it, and it was like, you could see, he either had a problem with who he was going to ring, or had no one to ring. And he called Rigsy looking at him. And he just went, yeah, you, you call who you want to call. And Rigsy said, I haven't got anyone to call. There's no one who wouldn't just hang up on me. And then you could see them both looking at each other, like, oh, we're in the same boat. And it's a sudden, you know, link between them. And uh, Fenton said, I'll ring him. I'll ring whoever you want me to ring. And he's like, I'll say whatever you want me to say. Well, why would you do that for me? He said, well, you'd be doing the same for me. And so you then, the late scene is then, you've got uh, Rigsy on the phone saying, he says he loves you and he loves little Jenny and, and he's left something for you in his will. And then Fenton says to him, it's all right, I know she hung up. You don't have to keep pretending. But it's just this real, oh, he's so lovely. Because, you know, even though he then turns into again and he, and he kind of starts... Because he hasn't got anywhere to put this aggression, so he has a go at Rigsy, and it's like, yeah, you, you're still that guy. Um, but that, that, that bit would have been between, I can't remember, but sort of the thing that ends that is the hand coming out of the ceiling and grabbing Matt Bardock. Yeah. 
so, so was that filmed? Would that have been that filmed? Was filmed? That was filmed. So yeah, so, so yeah, to read all this stuff, yes, yeah, so the character works perfunctorily. It's like, oh, if only you'd seen that scene. Well, that leads to the question of how much attention do you pay to that sort of feedback, and do you, you know, do you go on the internet? Do you do that foolish thing of going on the internet after your episodes? Been um, aired? I do to a point. I mean, I think uh, with I, I sort of I sort of shied away a little bit initially, but it's a bit like I had the director of Money almost filtering the good reviews, so he was just retweeting good reviews at me. I'm like, okay, you can be my filter. You can read the bad ones and filter them. Out. Um, I mean, I think it. it it's a tricky one because you can, you can get bound up in that idea. I mean, I think it's it's dangerous. I think it's, it's a thing I learned doing stand up is if an audience boos you and you take them on board and think that means something about you, it's just as false as the audience cheering and standing up. If you take that on board, it's it's the Kipling if you know you've got to treat triumph and disaster as imposters, you know. So I try and do the middle line and just holding true to what I, you know, believe. I, you know, it helps that I'm old, you know, I can't, I haven't come to this in my twenties. <laughs> so I'm kind of settled in who I am. I'm not going to have my head turned by any of this either way, really. Hopefully. Well, and, and take us to, um, take us to this year where I was quite surprised having, having had the two episodes that, you know, were, were front and centre of everybody's, um, you know, positivity. You were you were writing an episode with the the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that come about, and how's that pitched to you? Was that a, a just a done deal of you you doing this one? But 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 it was. I mean, I did have a lot of other stuff on which I couldn't wriggle out of. And Stephen Connolly said, you know, we could do a couple of things on it. Fine. I mean, the the other thing as well was pitching because because the episode that I've ended up doing was effectively the rompy uh, ro- robot of Sherwood slot, really. I mean, it was kind of like the gag-filled historical romp thing. But I did pitch a lot of weirder, darker ideas when I was trying to get the gig for that season. But I was a bit late in pitching for various reasons. And the, the, the thing that had happened, which was just, you know, I mean, Toby Woodhouse is in the building and he's a good mate, so take all that. When I'm saying all this, take that in mind. Um, so I was originally, I was pitching, uh, I've got an idea, the doctor as a ghost. Yeah, Toby Woodhouse is already doing that. Okay, forget that. Um, we'll do uh, an alien that transmits itself like an earworm. Yeah, Toby Woodhouse is already doing that. <laughs> um, okay, forget that. We'll do an underwater one. No, Toby Woodhouse. This is all true, by the way. And then I went, I've got an idea for the Zygons. Guess what? Uh, Peter Harness is doing that. And it's still going because I pitched another idea this year having not seen uh, Toby Woodhouse's episode or read the script or anything, I pitched a monster that basically had it, it had had its MacGuffin, it would mess with your timeline. And it was effectively a bootstrap paradox within a monster. And then I saw Toby Whithouse's episodes and I was like, yeah, it's still happening this year, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, so eventually uh, I think they took pity on me and went, right, what about the Doctor meets the Vikings? I'm like, brilliant, let's do that. Okay, I'll take that idea and I'll play with it. Um, and then I went, I went away and I thought of a, a sort of pitch for it. And I don't know what I was thinking because I went in and I pitched in the room to Stephen Moffat and Brian Minchin, the exec producer. A pitch for Do- The Doctor Meets the Vikings that would have the budget of a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. There were flying horses, Valkyries, flying longboats, sea serpents, 
and the episode ended with the Doctor crashing a longboat into Valhalla, you know, flying. And as I was pitching this, I could see them looking at each other, and in my head I was going, oh yeah, you've made a mistake here. <laughs> but uh, luckily there was an element within the uh, story which Stephen focused on, because he's Stephen, which was in the middle of it, the Doctor did a kind of 18 thing. And I think even at that point there were electric eels in the plot where the Doctor was stripped down, I mean, I love stripping the Doctor down in terms of tech, so no Charles, no Sonic, he's just got what's in the village. And Stephen went, well, surely that's the, that's the story. The story is the Doctor does an A-team with things that are in the village, and he's just got the crap Vikings to work with, and he, you know, somehow triumphs. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good way to go. So that was, that was where the plot sort of sprang from. And so uh, when you get... To- you know, when you get your first draft in, say, of having having agreed what the story is, how different is what we saw? And, and were those compromises always to do with the storytelling, or is, is some of it what you've alluded to about, you, you know, you can't spend a million dollars on it? Um, I mean, it's a bit of a push-me-pull-you with different elements that come to the fore, I think, because, I mean, to, to give you an example, uh, Shilda's character, amazing Williams wasn't in the frame, we write it and then go, right, who would be good for this role? Um, but I originally thought, making a shield a little bit older, and I thought, well, Clara's just lost Danny Pink. Why don't we have a shielder having a husband and he be one of the Vikings who is killed at the beginning? And then suddenly you can have a shield and Clara bonding over this kind of mutual loss of their fellas. And so I wrote a couple of drafts where that was going on. But ultimately... That's not forwarding the plot. I mean, it's, it's great for bonding those two characters together, but it kind of bogged everything down. And as soon as I removed the idea that Ashilda was married to one of the Vikings, suddenly I'm gaining five pages um, from doing that. The, the other thing which was initially put forward was that Ashilda would be a real background character that is not really made much of, and then sort of comes to the fore at the very end, is made immortal, and then has a whole episode to herself afterwards. So I wrote it that way, focusing on the Vikings, and then we realised that wasn't quite working, so we had to make her more foregrounded. So it was almost like, the more you foreground a shoulder, the less time the Vikings get. But I had lots of character stuff with the Vikings, which, because of time, just didn't make the cut. And what's the practical process? Because obviously now things can be done by email. And, and uh, How much is it face-to-face and how much is it, it, much is it here, you at home, doing it? And, and, and do, does it need too much you know, face-to-face interaction? Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on what's going on. I mean, Stephen's obviously very busy, uh, so it's, it's always working around his schedule, which uh, is understandable. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, working with him is great. Like, I always think it's like having... Uh, the best spell checker in the world but for ideas you know so it's like you'll come up with a really kind of half-baked thing and you hand it to Stephen and he goes click click and you go oh you've just made it brilliant by a little tweak I mean there, there was um, there was a piece in it where I was uh, oh this is an interesting bit of uh, you'll like this uh, <laughs> <laughs> specifically you will like this um, initially the idea of a shield being made immortal was the Doctor was going to effectively throw her body in the TARDIS and go to Khan. And the sisterhood of Khan were going to make her immortal. And so I wrote a scene where that happened. 
unwatched Brain and Morbius just to gen up so I knew what the hell I was talking about. And I noticed that um, in Brain and Morbius there's a point where Tom Baker carries Sarah Jane in and she's blind. And then you have obviously um, Paul McGann landing with a dead girl yeah. in Night of the Doctor. And I thought if 12 turns up with a dead girl, it's like they can say you keep bringing this damaged girl. That, so I had that be the sort of thrust of it. That's you know, it's almost like Clara going, "Does he? Is that what keeps happening here?" So I wrote this whole thing, but ultimately it's like it's too. It, it's a long-winded um, way around when the, the, the simplest, cleanest way is just to go. There's a bit of tech in the Maya helmet, and we can just add it to uh, Maisie Williams and sort it. But yeah, the point I was going to make is that um, as part of the scene, I wrote a sort of. Um, meditation sort of monologue that the doctor was doing on the subject of immortality um, and it was you know a good few paragraphs and in it there was the idea that immortality uh, isn't about living forever it's watching everyone else die and so that line was in there and Stephen took it and just went that line does the job you don't need and then you go yeah you're quite right that line just and I think you, you'll find that in a lot of Stephen's writing he gets to the point and, and the sort of nub of an idea really well. Um, and he did a lot of that in this episode. So thanks to Toby Whithouse and Jamie Matheson, who, as I say, had both agreed to do a Who's Round anyway. Uh, I just killed two birds with one stone because there are only so many hours in the day. Um, Louise Jameson and Matt Evenden... Evenden? Evenden? Chesterton. Matt Chesterton um, very kindly um, allowed me to use that footage from a convention that they had organised, so that's very kind of them. And that was because we were all in accord that we would like uh, Louise's charity that she'd organised the convention on behalf of DAVS, D-A-V-S-S, uh, to benefit from uh, from this. So please donate to them. It's davs.org.uk, davs.org.uk. They are a domestic uh, violence charity. Um, so listen, happy Christmas. Uh, I hope uh, you've enjoyed that. There'll be another Who's Round in a week. I don't know who it's going to be with yet. I'm not in the giving vein. I haven't decided. I will choose in the next couple of days as I pick through the last of the quality street in our house. That's the caramel penny and the coffee creams. We're not animals. Uh, But until then, uh, enjoy the rest of the festive season. And of course, I will have to say to you all, a Merry Christmas to all of you at home. Ta-ta.
Make it peace and quiet. Where are you? Hypocrites. The lot of you. This is it. Don't call me that! Lock all weapons on target! You think I'm not a monster? Well, look at me now! Prepare for total extermination of the Time Lords! Look at me! See! See! I'm a monster now, aren't I? Doctor! Nobody of that name here. Told you the Tartars. Now go, go, go! No, no, I'm coming with you. Don't be an idiot. I know the Daleks. I know them. The war has finally found me again. You're not a monster, 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 monster. Only the monstrous, the War Doctor, Volume One.